0: It's Monday, June 5th, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm your host, Christopher Millard, Principal Bassoonist of the NAC Orchestra. Well, it's CTV Pops Week at the National Arts Centre. The orchestra returns to the stage with conductor Jack Everly, and guest vocalist Anne Hampton Calloway for a swinging, swinging, swinging program of great tunes from the likes of Duke Ellington, Cole Porter, and George Gershwin. As usual, our concerts at Southam Hall on June 8th, 9th, and 10th begin at 8 p.m. Well, several weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with our principal pops conductor, Jack Everly. We talked about his career, and we talked about the whole subject symphonic pops concerts Jack Everly you have carved yourself an amazing career as an orchestral pops conductor and I know with my many years of experience with you one of the things that you are really great at have a real affinity for the great American musicals so tell me go back way back in your life where did the love of this stuff come from
1: it really came from my parents The odd thing in my family was that at the age of four or five, I was collecting and listening to and liking very much classical recordings, and my parents loved uh, popular and uh, Broadway shows. So, of course, we had uh, some 78s, then 45 RPMs, and then, of course, 33 and a third LPs, and uh, somehow these collections got mixed. And so I never really, that early on, found any difference between the really good tune that Beethoven wrote or Respighi wrote and that really good tune that Frank Lesser wrote I just knew they were great tunes mm-hmm. and I loved listening to that all at the same time.
0: So was Jack Everly a pianist at age three?
1: Uh, six. Six. Did, were you a good student? I was the worst student. Worst possible huh? Catherine E. Mitchell my uh, beleaguered uh, piano teacher in Richmond, Indiana. Uh-huh. Um, was my greatest audience, and I could make her laugh, <laughs> and I had to, because you I weren't actually not prepared. prepared. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should compare notes about that. Mm-hmm. So, how long did you whack away at the piano until until common
1: sense caught up with you? Well, I stayed at it actually, and uh, because she had the patience of a saint, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I really I adored her. She made it enjoyable. And because she had patience and she was very quiet and she was a great audience, I persevered. And piano was my main instrument when I went to the uh, Indiana University School of Music and uh, went for a split degree there. It was very odd. They didn't know what to think of me. I had uh, piano was my main instrument, but my other area of expertise or study was uh, set design for the opera. Yeah. So I went to New York City upon graduation thinking I would be a set designer, uh, maybe uh, in musical theater somewhere. Uh, doing something. So it was either going to be music or set design. I, I made myself uh, really, a, you know, I gave piano every effort. Uh, again, I had a very, uh, I found the right professor eventually. I did not start out with uh, a great one. What I ended up doing, aside from uh, a string bass and piano, was founding a theater where we could do musical theater the way I wanted to do it. Um, only a student can get away with that, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, the first, uh, somehow I, I convinced 35 of my friends to be the, the orchestra for production of She Loves Me, for which I also designed the sets and um, conducted, you know, we got there to opening night. We ran it for a weekend, and my opera production professor came to see it, and he was suitably blown away, and I thought, wow, maybe I can do this. I've got, you know... Mm-hmm. some perception about how to approach all this stuff. So it was a it was, that was a great thing. Okay. I really enjoyed that.
0: So you graduated from Indiana, that you went off to New York? Right after graduation, And did yes. you walk the streets starving, or did you find something to do? No,
1: I went right to Rhode Island is what I did, because um, getting to New York City, which was going to happen in September, in the meantime, one of my members of the orchestra for this production of She Loves Me said, you know, you ought to look into this uh, summer stock place in Rhode Island. It's in my, my home state, and they're uh, rather renowned for the quality of their productions. So I wrote them a letter. And uh, next thing I knew, I was hired as assistant music director. Mm-hmm. So I went there for the summer. It was Matunic, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. theater by the sea. And uh, I, sadly, I was told a couple years ago, it was actually just finally torn down It's a shame. Because it was one of those, let's do a show in a barn situations that uh, you know, Broadway luminaries had been going to for years.
0: So you went back to New York with a new skill set, mm-hmm. and you marketed yourself as...? Needing a job. Needing a job, right? <laughs> and one was soon offered?
1: Yeah, I, I consider myself very lucky, uh, because I, before I got my big break, um, I had only really been in New York for three years. So for three years, I was uh, paying the bills and doing all the uh, survival things that uh, still stayed in the realm of music and theater. And that's pretty amazing, because most people go there and end up doing a temp job of some sort, mm-hmm. just to survive, um, I was one of the lucky ones. And then, like like I said, the big break came. Which was? The Houston Grand Opera revival of Hello, Dolly! with Carol Channing. Wow. Um, I auditioned for John Domain, who was the music director of Houston Grand Opera at that time, and who was also well-versed in musical theater. Uh, He's really one of the best guys around for this. And uh, remember, I I auditioned. He said, OK, I'm going to sing like Carol sings right now. I'm going to play the piano, and you're going to conduct, and I want to see what you do with it. Well, what he was able to do was backphrase. So he could sing just like Carol, why he played what the orchestra would be playing at, at the piano. And he would play chords, and it was all perfectly in rhythm, but his, his back phrasing, in the style of Carol Channing, I might add, um, here's John DeMaine doing, I've always been a woman who arranges things. And I was completely floored that this guy would do this. And I understood, oh heavens, and I knew the show because I'd done it in Summerstock, um, but he seemed to like how I did it, how I approached it. And uh, I got the job. It was assistant music director. And three months into the national tour prior to Broadway, uh, the conductor left for an opera engagement in Europe. Uh, He'd had it. (laughs) Uh, He didn't have as much patience, perhaps, as you might need for such a job. And uh, lo and behold, Carol gave me the job.
0: So now let's fast-track forward a little bit. Eventually, you found yourself working in American Ballet Theatre. Correct. And you spent a number of years where that was your main focus. Mm Mm-hmm. Talk about
1: that, would you? That was a a wonderful experience of fourteen years, and uh, it's it's funny. Um, one thing always leads to the next in life, whether we want to admit that or not. And uh, while I was in Los Angeles conducting uh, a Broadway-bound production of Showboat, the then music director of ABT, I didn't realize it was in the front row, and he had been invited by someone else who knew me somehow and said, "You got to come see this." Mm-hmm. So he did, and two years later. Uh, he called me two years later and said, "We have an opening for a conductor at American Ballet Theatre. Uh, are you interested?" And I said, uh, "Well, perhaps." Who are you? Mm-hmm. And he explained who he was. And he sh- he saw this production of Showboat. And so I had a three-week trial. Uh, when this is when Barishnikov was running the company, and uh, we were at the Kennedy Center. First week, I was to conduct uh, graduation ball which is a nice way to ease in because it's you know 45 minutes of strauss waltzes as arranged by dorati and 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 very theatrical and all that. The second week was uh the complete cinderella Prokofiev and the third week was the complete romeo and juliet.
0: Unbelievable. That was my audition. Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: These are big pieces, big challenges. Huge for someone who had basically just gotten off the road with Showboat. You yeah. know? I mean, Showboat's huge, too. It's three hours of solid music. It doesn't stop, but... Are you a quick study with scores like that? I wasn't then, and I, that's where it started, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the repertoire for ballet theater would change, you know, every day, every week, every month, and it never stopped. You never stopped rehearsing, um, either with the dancers or with the orchestra. We also had a different orchestra in every single city we played. We never took our uh, orchestra with us.
0: Now, that's an incredible education to work with a different orchestra all the time, and you're having to figure out really quickly how the heck you're going to get the confidence of your musicians within the first 30 seconds, so that you're going to have a productive rehearsal. The whole magic of understanding how to manipulate a group's psyche is uh, is so fascinating, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, and uh, every ensemble's different. That's what's also additionally um, uh, fascinating for me about it, Um, and... Sometimes, uh, in the early part of my career, I found that rather overwhelming. Um, early on in, in the ballet theater experience, of course, we played uh, Paris. And so there we were at, at the uh, Théâtre Champs-Élysées, and we were Rite of Spring was premiered, and we're doing uh, Guetta Parisienne. And as it turned out, Manuel Rosenthal, the original arranger of it, was sitting in the audience. He's like 98 years old by that time. And uh, our new production had been designed by Christian Lacroix. And there was Baryshnikov, and blah, 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 blah. So it was a very heady time, and there mm-hmm. I was in that pit, and I was thinking, good heavens, what am I doing here? And uh, not only that, but the experience there with the, uh, I think it was the orchestra de, de la Moreau, couldn't have been ruder and more Parisian than than The Man on the Moon. And I learned uh, a lot from that experience. Um, it took me by surprise, and uh, because I was just this, you know, I, my my. my personality my whole persona is just very forthcoming and I, I i try not to put on airs especially there and they were having none of it <laughs> they were basically going to teach me how to you know accept whatever they were doing at the time without any discipline whatsoever one side of the orchestra would be chatting with the other while we were rehearsing supposedly mm-hmm. i learned from that not to be quite so gentle when, when times demands things that are not so gentle mm-hmm. and uh That was my first experience in in Paris.
0: Do you think in general that orchestral musicians are cynical about conductors?
1: um, I think so, because um, over the course of time, um, a lot of, and that's not to say they always are, but there's a healthy cynicism there. I think it's a very good thing. Um, For the most part, uh, there has been such patience with the ego of a conductor who um, can often, in the history of things, let that get in the way, which is unfortunate. Um, you mentioned something earlier, which was how to elicit from an ensemble the desired results. I'm, I don't know if I'm even conscious of that, aside from this is the technique that will allow this to happen. So that's where the hands come in, the baton technique comes in, etc. I don't even think about the persona or my personality behind it. I said, okay, this is the work, let's get going, let's do the work. I'm very, mm, I take a step back from the pers- personality thing.
0: I just find it amazing to to see how quickly musicians are either gathered together like a bunch of willing sheep and are prepared to walk across miles and miles of desert to do anything for their maestro, or within the first thirty
1: seconds say, "Oh
0: heck, well we've lost this week." Yeah. So it's not all in the <laughs> stick, is it?
1: <laughs> no. Um, there does have to be a chemistry there. It mm-hmm. really does. Um, they just have. There has to be this sense of. Okay, this is sincere. We can trust this. This is not going to. We're not going to be led down the primrose path.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really remarkable how different companies have a different level of commitment to the musicality of their choreography, isn't it? That's very true. Would you say that ABT was a particularly musically sensitive uh, community?
1: Sensitive. Yeah. Um, there are many schools of how to approach it, uh, meaning music uh, uh, vis-à-vis the choreography, and uh, of course, ABT was. Uh, This wonderful dichotomy of, it's Russian, no, it's American. It's Russian, no, it's American. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And one school, um, of course, there was also the British in there, so I shouldn't leave that out. Um, The British school especially had high regard for, uh, well, don't destroy the phrase. This is what the composer wrote. Mm -hmm. The Russian school has much less of that. It's all about the steps, the choreography, and make it fit. And uh, we had this marvelous um, uh, ballet mistress with ABT. We were always dressed in black and uh, sat in the corner, uh, you know, commanding the ballerinas and smoking, chain-smoking a cigarette all the time. And finally she said, you know, you, you, you have so much discussion about uh, Tchaikovsky, but uh, how you know he, uh, you, were you was you there? <laughs> and she, uh, she said this to me, you know, one day in rehearsal while she was chain-smoking. I said, no, I wasn't there, but he left me a lot of notes. <laughs>
0: An awful lot of notes. On to the subject of your Pops career. Yes. When did you really start moving into the uh, realm of the symphonic Pops repertoire?
1: Well, one thing does lead to another, as I mentioned, and ballet theater opened a lot of doors for me in the orchestral world, here in the States especially, and they started inviting me back. And they knew uh, that I had Broadway experience, so obviously, you know, the... Uh, The uh, requested repertoire was something of theater and or Hollywood or whatever, Um, although initially in San Diego it started off with Wagner, believe it or not. So I did an all-Wagner, followed by an all-Mozart, followed by a Russian Romantics, followed by Broadway, and talk about schizophrenia one Mm -hmm. summer, I must say, that was uh, quite bizarre. Very enjoyable, but quite bizarre. Anyhow, so these doors were being opened, and uh, I, of course, willingly ran through them and said, yes, I'd be pleased to do that. And it evolved. This was still while I was with ballet theater. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, even when I was with ballet theater, I would take uh, some time off and do a Broadway show. So that was, it was a very nice balance to have struck at that time.
0: Would you ever have wanted to consider yourself a solely classical symphonic conductor?
1: Uh, no, no. No, I've always had a passion for, again, all music, and um, uh, especially for uh, music from the theater, from film, etc., and the lighter stuff. Um, we did everything at Ballet Theater from uh, a Brahms symphony to you know Stravinsky and Mozart and Tchaikovsky. So I really went through that wonderful 14-year experience doing that repertoire, and it fulfilled a lot for me um, as I was... Slowly evolving towards what I now do, I decided. I made a conscious decision that, all right, now I'm going to do this rep, mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it really well. And because I love it, and it's very fulfilling for me.
0: One of the big difficulties for someone like you, one of the few peop- you are one of the few people who do this and do it well, is to uh, to program and put together material. And I'm especially speaking about arrangements of the American popular song, American standards. And finding your own style of arranger and your own material. And I know there are enormous hurdles. Some of them are hurdles like copyright and who owns what music. And it must be a big battle for you to have assembled and to continue to assemble your own library.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it's an ongoing research saga, if you will. Um, yes, I have... Uh, over the years, found just the right arrangement for just the right moment. Programming for this sort of thing is a lot trickier than one might think. It's so piecemeal. these are short pieces, and so you everything has to have an arc, not only the first half and the second half, but an arc to the evening. And it's about placement as well as everything else. And uh, it gets where it gets really sticky is that you may want to do a particular um, popular piece, but what's the arrangement? what's it scored for? Is it a vocal? Is it an instrumental? You have all these decisions to make, and then you try to find one that exists because creating your own takes a lot of time, uh, a lot of resources. You have to have it copied, so there's money to be spent. You do have to clear the rights um, because this stuff's usually not in the public domain. Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated procedure. So if you can find what you need that's already out there, you do go for that. That's the uh, the easier way. But I am a stickler for finding just the right version of something. And that's where it gets complicated.
0: Well, One thing that I've certainly noticed is that the arrangements that you bring to us tend to use the orchestra in more colorful and virtuosic ways than almost anybody else.
1: And I find that very important. Mm -hmm. I believe uh, throughout the season, every season, uh, the orchestra must remain in the consciousness of our public as the reason we are there. Mm -hmm. That's very important to me, and uh, I believe in that very sincerely. Um, Not just a backup band for a series of uh, star turns.
0: Yeah, and uh, you must also realize when you challenge your musicians with these complex arrangements that it helps keep them in shape and keep them focused. Can you also talk about how important it is that the material... Is not PAP in order that the musicians approach Pops concerts with the same level of Purpose that they do their Main series events?
1: Well that's a Valid point and it's a very important one Um, Some people Kind of get shudders when I Show up on the podium because they realize (laughs) That the arrangements Are going to be demanding and uh, Worth it but demanding And let's face it there are times when you think Okay one more demanding week and I'll turn into A turnip right now but uh, that's part of what it is. That's part of what makes it so fulfilling for the audiences. They're very, whether they even think they are or not, sophisticated these days. They experience so much. They hear so much. They're, they almost zone out on music because music is everywhere. And if it's not music that they hear, it's a rhythm track or mm-hmm. it's something really awful someplace else. To listen to music uh, is, is quite a challenge to get your audience to actually listen and, to uh, it.
0: And they only listen if they sense that the musicians are engaged.
1: Precisely. They sense that. It's it's not even a conscious thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's funny, they're drawn in on a very subconscious level.
0: When you come to an orchestra for the first time who may have not had such success with their POPs programs and may indeed, if I could say, approach POPs with a... Disdain is too strong a word, but perhaps... No, it's not. (laughs) Occasional indifference, shall we say?
1: (laughs) Yes. Then what happens? Then is what happens? Is that your question is? Yeah. Um, well, it's fascinating to see what happens because um, if there is disdain, which is, uh, I think, a very good word, uh, and you do see it, or condescension, you're not really going to convince them in the moment that what you're presenting and what you've brought to them is, uh, at least in the rehearsal, going to change the world of their disdain for uh, anything that isn't Bruckner. Okay. And I don't really... That's not my mission in life. My mission is just to present quality and enjoyment for our public. Because the mission of a symphony orchestra is to bring symphonic music to the public. And that's what's important. There are a number of musicians uh, around the world that still think it's... um, Their only mission is to bring classical music. And the more esoteric, the better, to their public. But that's only part of our mission, mm-hmm. and uh, they're the ones who have the disdain, the condescension. And that's unfortunate because I do feel that, uh, yes, anything can be schlocky, uh, even you know some really slapdash uh, classical concerts. You hear that. You see it. Um, and the real challenge is to not be of the lowest common denominator and to present something that is entertaining and challenging, to our public. That's why we're here. Yeah. And that's what we need to do. Absolutely. They, I do see the reaction change when there's an audience and they see and they hear the response and then suddenly they're engaged.
0: Yeah. So you've uh, established a very good rapport here in Ottawa.
1: Silence. No, I thought it, you were it, going on. In I'm, fact, I'm, it, it is quite true. Thank you. I'm, uh, I couldn't be happier. I really could not. It's, uh, When I first guessed it here, I thought, oh my heavens, what a fine orchestra, wow. And then to be asked back was like, oh, good, this Mm -hmm. is great. Um, I don't, believe it or not, uh, even at this stage of my career, uh, necessarily want to go back to everywhere I've been um, because the experience has been perhaps so laden down with um, a disregard for keeping it musical, keeping it good, just because it's popular. And that's very interesting that we call the whole pops thing pops as a slang when it really is derived from popular, like there's something wrong with music (laughs) being popular. Mm -hmm. One of the very special things here is uh, a sense of trust between uh, myself and the musicians and and hopefully vice versa. Um, I I do think that exists. It's a very special thing. It's part of that chemistry uh, between a conductor and the musicians, and that means... I understand you. I know this will be fine if it's slightly askew in rehearsal. I don't need to just repeat it for the sake of repeating it. Um, I know that to save time and wear and tear on everyone, we'll move on. We'll do something else. We'll, move, we'll go to the next piece or the next portion of a given piece. That's a very special part of the relationship, to know that that would be just perfect tonight in the performance and that I don't have to spend time just doing it again because one or two things were slightly askew. Mm-hmm. You understand um, when you hear it, well, that was just you know a, a one-time only mistake or whatever, and that way um, I think everyone feels more confident, like, oh, you actually understand what we're all about, and we'll trust you with that downbeat tonight, even though you, as a conductor, just fluffed it in rehearsal, because <laughs> it certainly works both ways. It works both ways. It certainly right? does, yeah. and I, I think that's really special here.
0: Our National Arts Center Orchestra Pop Series continue on June 8, June 9, and June 10 with our guest conductor, Jack Everly. Jack, tell us a little bit about this wonderful program with Anne Hampton Calloway.
1: Well, she's a delight. Um, She's been on Broadway. She's written songs for Streisand. She wrote the uh, um, theme song for the television show, The Nanny, and uh, she's truly one of the funniest people I know, and she plays piano. What else can I say? Uh, A great time will be had by all. Um, The subtitle of this program is Swing, Swing, Swing. She's going to sing some great standards, and oh, what an exquisite voice she has. You know, I had the great fortune years ago to work with Ella Fitzgerald, and I must tell you that uh, Anne has certainly inherited the uh, sincerity and and the beautiful voice that uh, Ella had. She's just a great, as they say, a great gal in the girl singer world. We're complimenting her with a marvelous ensemble called the Capital Quartet. And obviously, uh, that's a quartet of saxophone players, and they are just incredible. Some wonderfully uh, complex and enjoyable arrangements they are bringing to us. Music from uh, the 40s and the 50s, a couple from the 30s even. And such composers as Duke Ellington, Cole Porter, Arlen, Gershwin, Kern, Stein. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful evening of great standards.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jack Everly, thank you ever so much for giving us your time this week. And uh, I can tell you we are all looking forward to seeing you on the stage next season as
1: often as possible. Thank you. You're so very welcome.
0: Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOCAST. For the National Arts Center Orchestra, this is bassoonist Christopher Millard.